Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the uh, lead pastor here. I'm the one who threatened you all this morning by saying get ready to meet your maker at the beginning of, yeah, I don't know if you caught that or not, so that was fun. Well, we're continuing our journey uh, together this morning through the New Testament epistle or letter uh, to the Philippians. This morning's passage can be found for you on page 921 in that dark blue uh, chair Bible there in your um, in in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you at home, you're welcome to take that one with you. We'd love for you to have that as our gift. For the rest of you, we'll be in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. It's found on page 10 in your order of worship. You can also turn there in your own uh, smartphones or whatever you have there as well. You're going to want to have that in front of you. We're going to dip in and out of it through our time together today. We want to make sure we're looking at God's words and not mine primarily. <clears throat> so as you're turning there, I want to open up with a statement that I heard. We always do what we most want. In any, any given moment, our greatest desire determines our actions. And when I first heard that, I thought, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. People are forced to do things that they don't want to do all the time. And so I summoned up all 17 years of my wisdom all of my pre-social media and pre-texting diction, and I went, uh-uh, what if someone holds a gun to your head? Very good example, Mr. Sawyer, said my high school teacher. We were talking about the strength of nonviolent protest, and we were looking at Gandhi, and we were looking at Jesus, and we were looking at Martin Luther King Jr. He goes, that's a great example, Mr. Sawyer, because in that moment, you decide. Do you want life, or do you want whatever you're being asked to do more? you still get to decide. Now, it's a little overly simplistic, let's give him that, but at the same time, remember, as a, as a 17-year-old, it's kind of like, huh, never really thought about it that way before. Yes, public school teachers, you can actually make a difference. I'm still talking about it 30 years later. Like, wow, it was such a seminal moment to recognize that, that we decide what we desire more, whether it be, you know, you don't have to pay them taxes, get ready to go to jail, but hey, that's your choice, right? You can choose the pleasure of speeding and passing everybody, but you may have to choose to pay the consequences. Whatever it is, we decide what we want to do more, compliance or resistance, suffering or comfort. And a wise pastor, years later, I heard, he applied this to the Christian life and said, you know, for those of us in Christ, for Christians, we've been set free from the power of sin because of the work of Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, the Bible says. We are slaves to Jesus Christ. And so the battle of temptation for us is always at the level of desire. In Christ, we are free in temptation to do what we most want in that moment. That's where Paul is today in this passage we're about to look at. Paul is looking at his duty, he's looking at his desires, he has contradictory desires, and he's basically trying to work out for these Philippians, like what is he supposed to do in this hard time in his life when his desires don't quite balance? So with that in mind, would you now look with me, please, at Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in the second half of verse 18. If you kind of scroll down to the yes there at the beginning, in the middle of verse 18, we'll start there. <clears throat> this is God's Word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us that we might know you exactly as you want to be known. And so, Lord, we ask that today you would open this text up to us, that you would give us truth for our growth, for our transformation, that we would see Jesus in his beauty and our great need of him. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So where have we been in the book of Philippians so far? So far, Paul has prayed that they would be anchored in the gospel that they would have a love for each other that's so profound that they would understand that what really matters is Jesus, that he is what's most important, and that because of that priority, they would then be able to discern, he says, what basically is how to get along. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to, quote, the saints at Philippi. So this is to those already in the church. This is those already born again. So he's talking about how we relate to each other. And so in that context, he says, I hope you will be able to see that what matters most is Jesus. And in that, you would then be empowered to neither be offensive to each other nor be offended by each other. Now, again, this is not him talking about interactions with unbelievers because let's just own the reality. Telling someone in any time, in any culture, you're a sinner and you need Jesus is offensive. Okay, we're not talking about that. He's talking about Christian on Christian, some junk happening in the church. Because, you know, not here, but other churches and other Christians, sometimes we say things to each other that just aren't nice or kind, right? Right? Sometimes someone says something that's just profoundly dumb, and sometimes we tell them, and sometimes we don't need to, and a lot of times they do that back to us, thankfully. Paul's talking about that, interactions of Christians with each other, because we're going to see that they have junk going on in this church, and so he's setting up the principles whereby he will help them deal with these conflicts. And so he shows so far that the Spirit and Scripture have guided him through suffering and through recognizing that his contrary desires, that he can overcome those and be used of Jesus for good. So Paul has prayed that for them, He's applied it to his own circumstances, showing how God is using this prison for my good, and now he's going to kind of open up his heart and let them see his own internal struggle where he models how to live out the prayer he's already prayed for them, setting up, again, the principles to use in their suffering and their conflicts so they can move past those and be used of Jesus for others. 
And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When Jesus is a big deal, we lose for him so others can win in him. When Jesus becomes our big deal, we lose for him so others can win in him. And let's see how Paul shows us this. Let's jump right in. We see right at the very beginning that we see Paul rejoicing in deliverance. Paul says, I rejoice because I know what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit, I will get deliverance. It's the word that he uses most often for salvation. It's the simple word for rescue. Paul says, I will be rescued from all this because of your prayers and because of the help of the Holy Spirit. And he just kind of casually just says all this. His two-year-long trek through the Roman appellate court system that includes a long ship voyage, a shipwreck, being lost at sea, being on an island for a while, all that. He's like, you know, just all that stuff. The last two years of my life, you know, just all that. It's going to be for my deliverance. And he says it this way because what's going on behind the scenes is Paul is showing them that he's getting comfort from God's word. The Bible of the early church, because you know there was no New Testament then, it was called the Septuagint. It's the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's as technical as I'm going to get, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And in that, Paul basically, you know, control C, control V, puts some of that here in Philippians, right from Job 13, where in the midst of all his suffering and all his great loss, Job says, this will be for my deliverance. So what Paul is doing is Paul is cueing in these Philippians and, hey, guess what? In times of trial, when things you don't know what to do, you get comfort from God's word. Paul says, I'm spending time in God's word to get comfort, and you can too. And then he says, I know that by your prayers, this will result from my deliverance. Paul, the apostle of the sovereignty of God. Paul, the apostle who talks about how God is the absolute king in control of all things. I know all things work together for the good of those who love him. The Paul who repeatedly uses the forbidden P word, predestination, to show God's sovereign power. That same Paul here says, I know this is going to work out because y'all are praying. When God's people pray, God does stuff, Paul says. Well, yeah, but I don't know how to pray we say as Christians, don't we? Or I'm not that good at prayer. Or I don't pray that long. Or I, I never know what to say. That's okay. Romans 8 tells us what? That the Spirit inside of us knows how to pray and what to say with groans too deep for words. In other words, in this weird thing, we have you know, part of the Trinity in us praying to another part of the Trinity that's not in us, getting the Trinity to move on the Trinity's behalf. <clears throat> it's amazing. And Paul says, you have that same Spirit. That's what you get to do. And Paul says, here's what I want. I need not the help of the Holy Spirit. He actually uses the word for supply. It's the idea, can I just take a scoop of, the, of that same Holy Spirit and have some of that for me? Y'all pray that I can have that same spirit because I'm scared and I want help. And he, he says, notice, he doesn't say the Holy Spirit. What does he say? He says the Spirit of Jesus. Here is Paul, the former Shiite Jewish terrorist who used to kill people to stop them from believing in Jesus as Messiah, now saying this Jesus is divine. So it's not the Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit of Jesus. Again, Paul is subtly teaching the reality of the Trinity, a word that never appears in the New Testament, but the concept is there. There's even more going on here by calling it the Spirit of Jesus. This is amazing. Paul is saying, 
hey, remember who Jesus is. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so because of that, he was born in Christian theology, we say, without what's called original sin. Okay, getting technical, but here's why. Because, here's the cool thing about this. Jesus was born in Christian theology by the scriptures without original sin. He was born holy, but how did he stay holy? Jesus didn't tap into his divine nature to stay holy throughout his life. Jesus stayed holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's more than just trivia because here's the deal. If Jesus is going to come and undo what Adam did as the second Adam, he can't access resources Adam didn't have. So if Jesus pulls out his divine nature to resist some temptation, he's basically pulling out the controller of life and going up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, A, B, using a cheat code. And he can't redeem us if he uses a cheat code because if he does something Adam can't do, we're still lost in Adam. He undoes Adam's nature by the, or Adam's fall by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's why that's important, besides what I just said is important. Paul says right here, I need that same spirit in the struggle I'm having right now. The same spirit that kept Jesus holy, I need a supply. Give me a scoop of that spirit because I need it. And here's what's amazing. Jesus had that spirit because he was holy. So the Holy Spirit could inhabit him without destroying him. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, we're declared holy. And the very first thing that happens to us is God pours his spirit into us. We get the indwelling of the spirit without turning inside out and exploding because of our sin because we've been declared holy. We have the same spirit that Jesus had. Paul's reminding his readers and he's also reminding himself of what he has in Christ. He goes, because of this union with Christ that I now have, I have this spirit. And Christians, we have that same spirit when we're afraid, when we're dealing with trials and temptations like Paul is. And so Paul says, I know all of this together will be for my deliverance, which he defines for us as not being ashamed. And he further tells us that he wants to be able to have bold courage. It's a word used from the debating culture of the day. means with like clear, concise frankness to make Jesus a big deal. Earlier he prayed that we would understand what really matters. Here in verse 19 and 20, remember, look at what he says. He says that Christ would be honored in my body. It literally means that Christ would be made large or in our vernacular, that Christ would be a big deal. So you bring that all together, here is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, y'all pray for me that in my upcoming hearing before Caesar himself, most likely, judging by the timeline, probably Nero, terrible, vicious, anti-Christian Caesar, saying, please pray that I will make Jesus a big deal and that I will clearly articulate the gospel before Caesar, even though it may cost me my life. Because Paul is a man and he's afraid. He's saying all this, help me, pray for me. That's a lot going on there. I'll make sure that we're all following this, especially you boys and girls who are still here. So boys and girls, let's take out your order of worship. Okay, now kind of in the middle of page 10, we have your verse 20. Here's how we put it for you guys. It says this. I really hope that I won't be too scared to tell Caesar the gospel. I want to be brave and make Jesus the big thing in my life or in my death. 
See, Paul says that's his joy, boys and girls, is to make Jesus the big deal, even if it costs him everything. Because when Jesus is the big deal, we lose for him so others can win in him. Next, we see Paul talks about being empowered to duty over desire. And this is a little thick, so I want to reread these verses together, verse 21 through 24 again, to make sure we understand what's going on here. So starting in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul is looking ahead at this pending hearing before Caesar, the equivalent of a Supreme Court case in that culture. And he says, look, there's going to be two outcomes here, okay? One is I go on living in and for Jesus. That's my duty, Paul says. Or the other is I'm executed in and for Jesus, and I gain him completely because of that. That's my desire, Paul says. And Paul is honestly and earnestly torn between duty and desire. You ever been torn between duty and desire? Isn't isn't that crazy that that's what stinks about growing up and maturing? especially growing up and maturing in your faith. You think when you're immature or younger, you think, oh, well, the choices are always black and white, and so I'll know, I've just, I just got to figure out. No. And you get there, and you're like, it's all gray. <laughs> I don't know what the better path is. But then there are times when it's actually really clear, isn't there? And everything in you is like, take the dark path. And you look at the right path, you're like, but I'm supposed to want, but oh, man, this is amazing. I remember seeing a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon one time when I was young, just grabbed it so much. Calvin has got these two choices before him. One's clearly disobedient, one clearly is not. And he kind of looks at the camera in a way that only you can on a comic. And he goes, as usual, good doesn't even put up a fight. Right? Because that's how often it is. So often what is so shiny is the bad thing. We're torn between duty and desire. I remember one time about 15-ish years ago when I was a pastor in Missouri. It's my day off. I'm in the garage. I'm spray painting furniture so the garage door is open. Now my peripheral vision, I see two guys walking up and I look and they got white shirt, short sleeves, button down, and a tie. And I mean, it was like, oh, you're kidding me right now. And so they're either J-dubs or Mormons. I don't know. And I don't care to be, be candid. And so they start walking up and they make eye contact and get all smiley. And I just get, guys, I'm a pastor. If you convince me, I lose my job. <laughs> and they stop, right? One guy looks to the other guy, and he looks at me and goes, if, if your eternal salvation were on the line, wouldn't it be worth losing your job for? Okay, first of all, I was like, dude, bro, wow, touche. That, that was really good. I'm a, can you, I'm gonna write that, let me say that. How'd you say that again, right? And so me, I mustered up all the gravitas of a 31-year-old important pastor, and I went, nope especially when I'm not on duty, and I just turned around and walked away. Now, I, I'm telling you that because it's funny, but I'm not proud of that because I was convicted majorly after I had to spend some time repenting because, you know, when, you, when you're a pastor, you're always on, 
and if God puts you in a neighborhood, you're the shepherd of that neighborhood whether they want you to be or not. And so what I basically did is, as the sheepdog in that neighborhood, I saw these wolves coming in and say, hey, we want to spread spiritual manure all over your, un- your unbelieving neighbors. And I was like, I'm off duty, whatever, I don't care. Because every hour they spent with me arguing was an hour less they were with my neighbors, right? But I wanted peace. It was my day off. I didn't want to deal with that junk. Are you kidding me? Come back during business hours, okay? <laughs> See, that's not Paul. With his duty and his desire, he says there's two paths. Verse 21. There's no verbs in verse 21. It's super concise language. He says, for me to live Christ. That's his duty. His union with Christ, Paul identifies as Jesus. Paul identifies as Jesus. To live is Christ. Because of his union, I am a little Christ. Christ is in me, and I am in Christ. I live for Christ. I identify as Christ. This is my reality. So Paul is saying, look, if God has put me in suffering, I'm so close to him because of Jesus, then God will resource me in my suffering. And so because I have those resources my job, my duty is to make Christ the big deal in my suffering. Oh, and dear Christians, we have the same union. We have the same resources in that hard marriage, in that rough boss, in that lost promotion, in that fertility struggle. You have the same access to the same spirit that where God calls you to suffer he resources you in that suffering so that you can do your duty of making Jesus a big deal in that suffering and let's be candid that doesn't sit well does it we don't like that word duty in our culture do we we don't like that because what's, what's the idea of duty mean? The idea of duty is that there is something outside of our autonomous self that has a claim on us. In a culture that says the autonomous self is everything, including I have this biology, I don't care, I'm this because I rule my life. The Christian, we don't get to say to live is self. No, to live is Christ. Because Christians lose for Jesus so others can win in Jesus. To live for Christ is Paul's duty. The second path, Paul tells us in verse 21, to die, gain. That's his desire. Paul says straight up, I want to die so I can gain more Jesus. I want to be with Jesus with no more obstacles in the way. No more my own sin. No more the sin of others. No more all this weird stuff we have to do to commune. I want direct communion with Jesus in heaven. I want that. I want my one day, someday with him to be today. That's my desire. See, Paul's want-tos don't align. Die is gain over living, he says. And he's honest about his struggle. Look with me at verse 22, how much he struggles with this. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He he can't figure it out. He doesn't know what to do. But did you catch the weird phrase there? You have this famous court case. 
you're about to go into the Supreme Court itself where they're going to make the decision, the binding decision. Reporter sticks the microphone in your face. You say, yeah, I haven't decided how I'm going to choose yet. The reporter goes, uh, I think there are nine people who are going to do that for you. Catch it? See what's going on here? There's no First Amendment in Rome. Paul's a prisoner. He's in prisoner for being an insurgent threat to the government. He doesn't get to write these insurgent tracts without someone going, you cannot say Jesus is more powerful than Caesar, because no, it's illegal. So Paul got to say it on the DL. So what's Paul saying here? Look, when you pray and when I pray, we're going to go over Caesar's head. I can't choose which way to pray. Caesar's irrelevant. I'm going to talk to the manager, is what Paul's saying here. And he's saying, I don't know which way to pray because I want this, but I should go this way. I don't know what to do. He even tells us how deeply honest he is in verse 23. He says, I desire to be with Jesus, and he calls that the better desire. But in his heart, he knows the greater desire is to serve faithfully, to do his duty. So it all comes together in verse 24. He says, this is more necessary on your account. Purposely losing in Jesus so others can win. That's Paul's ultimate want to. Oh, there's deep biblical wisdom here if we have the eyes to see it. You realize, dear Christian, that our battle with temptation, it's always about our want-tos. It's always about our want-tos. Do we want that momentary, shiny sin more than we want communion and fellowship with Jesus in that moment? It's always about our want-tos. If we've been set free from the power of sin, it comes down to our want-tos in every temptation. That's why it's so vital that you and I, dear Christian, engage in what historically has been called private worship where we, where we take time daily, maybe, to read God's Word, to see the beauty of Jesus on every page, to wrestle with our duty versus our desires in prayer. We don't do that because we're trying to impress God. Look, I did my stuff today. No, we're doing it because we need that. Oh, you want to grow as a Christian? It comes from daily being with Jesus. In fact, you know what my main job is? If, you were to, if, if I were to ask you, hey, what do you think my main job is? Or how about your unbelieving neighbors? <laughs> That's always fun. Hey, what's the pastor's main job? Okay. okay, I'm not here to harangue you into voting a certain way. I'm not here to chide you into behaving right and acting like good little toddlers. I mean, Christians, right? That's not my job. My job, according to the scriptures, is to week in and week out show you the unbelievable beauty of Jesus Christ in the gospel so that your heart desires him above all things. Because that's how we say to live is Christ because our want-tos align with his beauty. Because when Jesus is a big deal, we lose for him so others can win in him. And so Paul finishes by talking about how he's going to advancing in his delight. That in suffering, in adversity, he says, you know what, there's two paths for the Christian when you get right down to it. There's the hope of being with Jesus and there's the hope of being used by Jesus for others. And so convinced that his duty is the, better, is the greater desire over the better desire of wanting to be with Jesus. Notice how he doesn't say one's good, one's bad, right? Different shades of gray. This is the better. I will do this. I will set aside my preferences to honor Jesus with my body, he says in verse 20, to make Jesus a big deal. 
He goes, so I will pray, and Philippians, y'all pray the same way. Let's pray that Nero lets me go. I get to come back and serve you for your joy. And Paul says, I'm convinced. He doesn't say, it has been authoritatively revealed to me by the Holy Spirit because I'm an apostle. No. He says, I've been convinced through prayer, through scripture, through meditation, through thinking it out. In other words, Paul does what every one of us can do in our suffering, in our hard decisions, in our, in our struggling with desires. We can be convinced by scripture, by the Spirit, and by each other that this is the path. We can let God's word guide our trials and our suffering. Paul says, that's what I want y'all to pray for, that Jesus will use me to bring joy to y'all, to help you grow. Literally, it says to make progress, to move past their conflicts and their troubles as a church. How? Well, Paul has prayed, and now he's modeled putting Jesus first, being willing to lose so other Christians can win, so they can make progress, he says, in the faith. Did you catch it? Not just have faith. This isn't George Michael's song. No, this is the faith. This is not a subjective feeling. Paul's not saying, oh, I want to delay heaven so y'all can feel faith. You just got to have faith. No, Paul's saying, I will delay heaven to help you progress in the faith. The fact that you are sinners and that you should die before a holy God, but Jesus Christ lived the life you should have lived before this righteous God. He died the death you should die before this holy God. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death. So when you place your faith and trust in him alone, you're put in union with Jesus. So what's true of him is true of you. He gives you the Holy Spirit and he says, now go live with joy that faith Paul says I'll delay heaven and come and help you progress in that as he sums it up in verse 26 says y'all are going to have so much joy not in me but in Jesus because Jesus has updated Paul's want to's and that gave Paul joy to come and serve them all the things that this Philippian congregation will need to do if they're going to move past their conflicts and their squabbles to get back into faithful ministry in their city for Jesus. Well, let's wrap this up. We have walked the path through this passage of a holy thing. And here's what I mean by that. This book, this epistle was written before any of the Gospels were written. So oral tradition that they had, they knew about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But as Paul is walking through his internal conflict, Paul basically comes to the conclusion, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And we are not given authoritative telling of the internal struggle of our Lord Jesus in the last night in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we are told, what does he say? He says, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. but we see a mirror image of this struggle in Paul and so we can see what our Lord went through. Our Lord agonized on that last night between his duty and his desires, didn't he? He desired not to absorb God's wrath and curse for our sin. He didn't want that. But by a supply of the Holy Spirit, Jesus chose to lose so others could win. And being convinced what did he say? Father, not my will, but yours be done. 
Oh, dear Christian, see again the beauty of this Jesus who earnestly struggled. Going to the cross was not easy. We say it so much that we think, we, we treat it like it's a glib, easy thing. It was not. Jesus agonized doing this for you. But because of the great love with which the Father loved, loved us, Jesus said, I will do your will. I will execute this love by executing myself. See the beauty of Jesus yet again. Let him be your heart's desire, and he'll use you to serve others in joy. And if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you can have this. This is Christianity. Not behavior modification, not community conformity, not voting patterns. This is Christianity. That in the love of God, he gave his son for you. That when you place your faith and trust in him, he can forgive you give you purpose, give you fulfillment, and flood your life with joy and then use you to serve others. I mean, don't you want that? You can have it. Just repent and believe the gospel even now. Let's pray together. My gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, that you have given us your Son, And that because of the great love with which you loved us, you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And that in him we have joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Because he has earned by his blood the righteousness you require, and you give it to us as a gift. Lord, we thank you for this gospel. And we ask, Father, that as we prepare to come to your table that you would once again give us deep communion with Jesus, that he would be the big deal in our hearts, and that we would long to make him even larger. And Lord, we pray that for those here today who don't know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, that you be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Will you do your work even now, Father, of causing many to believe and then confess? We pray all this, Father, in Jesus' great name. Amen.